Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. It's time for Bite Into It, where we discuss everything that's new, exciting, thought-provoking and a little bit terrifying in the world of computers, <laughs> new technology, online culture and everything that goes on behind that little screen that you're holding in your hand. With me to discuss all of this uh, this evening are Lily Ryan. Lily, how's it going? Not doing too bad. Excellent. Good to hear. And Rowan Murray. Rowan. Good evening, everyone. My name is Dan Salmon. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Later on the show, um, we've got a show at next month's Melbourne Fringe, which is exploring gender through interactive artificial intelligence. I hope I'm getting that right, because the mind behind it, Jay Rosenbaum, will be joining us to explain exactly what that means. Also, are workers in the games industry getting a good deal? Many don't think that they are, and we'll be speaking to Tim Colwell from Australia's first union for workers in the games industry, Game Workers Australia, funnily enough, is that what it's called, and uh, what they're going to be doing. About it. We were setting up our little news segment for today, and as our regular listeners would know, we would normally cover off half a dozen little tidbits of what's afoot, but frankly, we decided to focus our efforts mm. in one teal and yellow area. <laughs> teal and yellow. We love teal. Lily, do you want to give our listeners the skinny, the lowdown? Oh. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you have not been listening to the news this week, we are very sorry to break it to you that Optus has experienced a data breach. Um, a big it, one. A quite quite a significant one. Yes, mm-hmm. um, about nine million customer records um, have different customers' records have been leaked. Um, some would say breached, some would say scraped from the Telstra website. Not the Telstra website, the Optus website. <laughs> oh, oh, my wow. goodness. <laughs> we just got, got back in time. Sorry, Telstra. <laughs> We're so, so in the habit of bagging out Telstra. <laughs> I know. Optus used to be the good guys. It's Pavlovian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Telstra. Optus. The Optus website. Um, yes, and that data included information about Optus customers included names, email addresses, home addresses, uh, document numbers like driver's licenses, passport numbers, dates of birth, Medicare numbers, all kinds of stuff Mm. that you probably don't want floating around for just anyone to take. Um, And Optus has been going through notifying customers about it, but there has been a significant amount of discussion about what can be done about it given the nature of the breach, meaning that that is, you know, as our cybersecurity minister said, about 100 points of ID. So there's a lot of identity theft, identity fraud that could be going on out there with with some of that information. Mm, absolutely. And, we, and we've already seen, you know, the, the people or people who are purporting to be the people who have stolen all this data, hold, trying to hold ransom and get pa- payment for it. So we're already seeing... You know the the uh, ongoing results of what happens when these kind of breaches happen. It's 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 interesting because we we do talk about data breaches a lot on this show, um, but this is one a that if has affected such a huge number of people. But this is a company that has a lot of trust and has had a lot of trust. Um, mm. You know, for the last twenty twenty five thirty years since they've been around, and. When we're talking about, you know, a company like Facebook, yeah, they've got, you know, your email address and your passwords and that kind of stuff. They're not collecting 100 points of data to start credit records with your stuff. And this is the difference. The difference is that they're actually, you know, holding information that is vital for you to be able to participate in the society that we live in. 
Um, sorry, I, 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 that's kind of everything I wanted to say in this particular juncture. Got some yeah, a little yeah. bit, a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, look, it's understandable, definitely. And you know, um, we, what, what's what's the latest from today, Lily? Well, a lot of people are obviously very upset about this and wondering what they can do to help protect their identities and that kind of thing. And one of the key things that is being discussed is, well, you could get a new driver's license, you could get a new passport, replace those, then document identity number has changed and the old information will hopefully not be as easily used to steal your identity. Which makes sense. It's just that doing those things costs money. Mm. So, um, and, and you know, this wasn't anyone's, in, anyone individual's fault, and it's certainly not any customer's fault. So that expense can be quite significant in some cases, especially when it comes to passports. The latest from today is that Penny Wong has now written to Optus to ask them to reimburse the costs for any customers who may need to replace their passports as part of this. Um, because previously there wasn't any any way for people to get that reimbursed, and it is quite expensive. It's very expensive. One, one thing that I hope um, might be a good thing that comes out of this is the ease, or hopefully it will become easier to for people to be able to change uh, their you know driver's license number and things like that, that when they are victims to this. Because I've I've been a victim of identity theft. And it's been it was very difficult to try and get my driver's license number changed. I ended up not being able to do it because it was so difficult. Oh gosh. So I hope that the, like if nothing else, something good that comes out of this is, you know, the government might actually catch up on the last ten years and realize that this is happening far more than people like then then the onerous um way of getting things around oh, absolutely out. like yeah. I, I think this if there's going to be any positives coming out of it you've hit the nail on the head you know i went through uh something about six or eight weeks ago where my details were compromised had to change a whole bunch of banking stuff over and um yeah it adds insult to injury when systems aren't equipped to deal with it customer service staff mm-hmm. don't know how to deal with it all, all of that kind of I, stuff. It's, when you haven't got time to go down to the police station and put a stat deck in, which will do absolutely nothing. It's like going mm. to the doctor when you've got the flu. You've got to go there to get a doctor's certificate, but the doctor can do absolutely nothing for it. Like, it's, mm. yeah. Uh, and know, particularly sorry. your average police station isn't geared up to deal with any level of cyber security, well, cyber anything, frankly, mm. um, even when, you know, you hand the whole thing to them on a platter. And, you know, that's one of those things where all the systems need to catch up. Yeah. Re- both recovery and legislative and security. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say legislative because that is one of the other things that's coming out of this. It's not just that whole discussion of what can individuals do to help protect their identities at this point because that is honestly, you know, yes, very pragmatic and practical kind of thing, but in another sense kind of victim blamey because it's not like it's anybody's fault for having it's like how dare you have a name and agenda how dare you exist i mean i know there's a whole (laughs) bunch of like let's abolish gender to begin with but how dare you so honestly it's it's really interesting to i think talk about not just how we protect our identities in terms of our personal information but what the the government can do in terms of how companies should be looking after our information what they should be holding and and what we should be doing about that from a legislative point of view we're calling for you know privacy act reviews to incorporate this kind of thing it's it's super important and because everybody's so angry about it we might be able to nudge that energy in a pretty positive direction definitely mm. and and we are seeing senior government politicians actually saying, yeah, we are 10 years behind. I don't think I've ever seen a, any member of a government on either side of the mm. aisle actually acknowledge how far behind 
the 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 uh, trends of technology and catching up to it. Um, it's 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 good to finally see someone taking a bit of responsibility for it, even Most... though it's taken this nominal <laughs> stuff up for oh, them to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Lily, I was wondering if you can um, explain for our listeners at home who might be Optus customers, you know. In simple terms, how, how did it happen? What was the sort of mechanics of it? As far as I understand it, and I've done, you know, I've done extensive research by hanging out on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's the best place to find things out, I find. Yeah. Um, so as far as I understand it, what happened was that Optus has this this website, this URL, an API endpoint that gives you information. It's designed to give customers information when they go and they log into the Optus portal that it, it retrieves all of their customer data so it can display it to them on the website. What happens with that is it turns out that that particular um, program endpoint has a vulnerability in it or had a vulnerability in it. It's no longer public, which is good, but it was available to the internet without anybody needing to log in. So if you knew that URL, you could go there. And if you knew a customer ID, you could go there and get customer information. The other thing that went wrong there was that the customer IDs that they were using internally were sequential. So it was like one, two, three, four. So it was possible for an attacker to just go from one to the next one to the next one. They were very guessable and just pull information out, which is what happened. Well, also scriptable. Very scriptable. Mm. I was having a look on on GitHub yesterday. There were a couple of scripts out there that people had already written, not to scrape other people's info, but to scrape their own to look for their customer usage data and stuff that used this this same endpoint. It's been out there and around since at least 2018, probably longer. So in addition to the vulnerability that we've seen that got exploited that's leading to this incident, it's quite possible that other people have seen this in the past and just not been as noisy about it. You know, the reason this is getting attention is because someone posted online about it and decided to hold Optus to ransom. But plenty of people may have gotten this information and not done that. Mm. We don't know. Is there a potential that this is like a similar similar vulnerabilities are across other organisations that hold similar kinds of data? I mean, it is it is possible. It's a category of vulnerability that that's not uncommon. Um, I think what was unique about this was just there were a couple of different things that had to go wrong for this to be as bad as it is. One of them is the type of data that's living at the other end of that application interface. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred points of ice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, another one is um, sequential customer IDs. You know, if they were hard to guess, it would be harder to go over them one by one and pull out quite so much information. Um, So there are lots of, and, and, you know, the unauthenticated stuff as well, like things that are accessible without being logged in. Mm. that that's you know that's a mistake. Mistakes happen, and I feel like you know data breaches do happen all the time. It's something that is pretty normal on the internet today. Not to say that it should happen, but it does. And what happens next is really the most important thing. So there are a lot there are a lot of lessons I think that people can take away both as companies, as individuals, and as you know as a government I suppose mm. from this whole thing. It's a very interesting topic that uh, you know I think we're going to be talking about for quite some time. Yeah, I think so. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with Ro. My name is Dan and Lily. We've got someone else in the studio. We do. So... 
Jay Rosenbaum is a contemporary artist specializing in 3D modeling, augmented reality, and machine learning. They've created an interactive AI work, which you can experience as part of the digital on-demand stream at the Melbourne Fringe Festival this October. And to find out more, we are very pleased to welcome Jay Rosenbaum into the studio with us tonight. Hi, Jay. How are you going? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty well. Um, you know, you were you with Optus? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a tough first question. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. I, I regret my choices. <laughs> so, 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 Jay, interactive AI. Yeah. Tell us, uh, unpack this for us. All righty. Well, it's it's an interactive space. You know, it's all 3D. It's immersive. It's a metaverse. Um, all those buzzwords. And se- uh, several of the spaces, it's uh, different interlinked spaces that you wander between to explore these different projects. And some of them lead to websites where you can then uh, interact with the AI. You can gain uh, your own gender classification, which is not a gender classification at all. It's a colour. Nice. And then contribute to a community-based artwork, which is a mural um, or a mosaic, that's the word, um, made up of uh, images of all of the different colours, coloured faces, bringing together these, um, yeah, images together. That sounds delightful. It does. Um, And this this experience, this is available. You you don't have to go anywhere in particular for it, right? You can Mm. do this at home, is that right? You can do this at home. You can do it on your phone. You can do it in bed or you can do it on your VR if you've got a set. Matter of fact, I'm doing it now. (laughs) (laughs) um, So what was behind the decision to to make it a a virtual interactive space that you could do anywhere rather than in a specific location? Uh, It actually came about because of my PhD um, examination. So when you're doing a creative PhD, you create an exhibition as a result. And um, it turns out that some of my examiners are possibly overseas. So they wanted to make it accessible to as many people as possible. So I went, well, why don't we go online? Why don't we make something really, really cool? And then it ended up being actually pretty cool. And I thought, oh, more people should see this. <laughs> oh, I love that. What are, you, what are you hoping that the audience will think and feel about when they're experiencing this work? Oh, I hope that people start to examine what maybe what gender means for them and what um, AI thinks about gender. What what are we what are we giving to AIs in terms of gender, and what are we getting back from it? You know, what how is AI interpreting gender, and why? What do you think that gender means to machines? I think that gender is a data point. It's a box to put people in. And it's up to us to decide, do we want to be in that box or do we want to, you know, break the walls open and be, uh, do we want to increase the number of boxes or do we want to have no boxes? (laughs) Heavy stuff. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's just trying to, wow. I like it. I was going to say, you could could be, rather than being a gender, you could be a hex value or an RGB Mm. value. Yeah, that's exactly what this gender tapestry project is, is um, blending uh, instead of um, having a yes or no male, female, one, zero, how most classifiers work, it uh, uses a multi-label classifier and mixes a custom RGB colour based on the results that it receives. (gasps) I'm obsessed. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that's gorgeous. I'd probably turn out olive green. I, I like olive green. No, but like a nasty one. Oh, I like the cigarette packet. The cigarette cigarette packet, which is apparently the worst PMS colour ever invented or something. See, I reckon reckon the cigarette colour would look good on a motorbike, but that's just me. Uh, (laughs) So, so Jay, is everyone getting their own individual colour in this particular piece or is it one of these things where you might end up having a colour that is the same as someone else's? You... 
I, I mean, I've only tested it in a, in a limited way. Obviously, this is my first time testing it with a huge audience. I did test it with um, Stoff, um, Stockholm Fringe Festival, but it um, that one wasn't interacted with as much, so I didn't get full data spread. So I'd like to say that everybody gets a unique colour, but it may be that there will be some that are the same. And do you walk away with, with the hex value? Uh, with the actual numbers, no, but you do walk away with a Warhol-esque uh, image of your face in both light and dark versions. Oh, I love that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a bit about AI because your work is so AI mediated and I've had the pleasure of seeing your work presented before and it's, it's incredible, but AI means a lot of different things to different people and to even different people who work in AI. And I wondered, um, what it means for you and what it means to artists, especially because I feel like we're seeing a lot of AI-mediated art becoming very accessible to a wider audience. Now we've got things like Dali and Stable Diffusion that are now things that you can sign up for and just play with prompts online and get this kind of work. But you've been doing work like this for, for like a decade, probably more now. And so I wondered what your thoughts are about this kind of accessibility of new media, particularly the conversation around what it means for artists generally, being an artist who works in that medium. Oh, I have a lot of complicated views about it. First of all, I absolutely love these systems. I use them all the time. I'll, I'll generate images during our role-playing sessions and everything. I absolutely love them. Um, in fact, the uh, galleries in, in my project are all initially designed by AI, by uh, using MidJourney um, was oh, cool. the one for that. So, I mean, I absolutely love them. But for artists, there is actually a big impact because um, the training data was not uh, no artists were asked to contribute their data it was just taken um, no artists were paid in the contribution mm. of the data and so there is a greater uh, conversation that needs to be made there in terms of consent and in terms of maybe paying artists and things like that maybe some artists don't want to be part of it maybe some do and I think that that should be respected Absolutely. I've, I've also seen, um, seen images generated where people have said, oh, look, that's somebody's, you know, somebody's Instagram tag or somebody's mm. signature trying to be emulated by the, by the machine when it comes back. So yeah, mm. really quite clear that, that that's happened. What kind of AI do you use in your work? Uh, I use a bunch of different kinds, depending on what I'm doing. Um, some, sometimes I use GANs, which are, I guess, considered low tech now. One of the fun <laughs> things about doing a PhD is, is that in AI is you start doing one thing and then by the time you publish it, it's out of date. Um, but, yeah, I, I still like GANs. Um, I still think that there's a lot to be done with those. I've worked with style transfer. I've worked with, um, obviously, facial rec recognition and classification. Um, and uh, text to image prompt generate uh, text to image generation and things like that as well. Yeah. Well, speaking about mm. um, you know gender and facial yes. recognition, so you 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 say that um, you know AI has been basically trained to put people in the box of mm. one gender or the other, and I suppose that kind of could fall back to this idea that people's faces and facial recognition it does that same categorization. Mm. Can, can you can you see how that might how we could change that at all. Or? 
I think that the the best way to to do it is to I mean why do we need to have um, AIs classify gender is the main question really why does that need to happen and a lot of the time it's for advertising mm-hmm. and for um, you know targeted uh, things like that it's um, it's actually pretty irrelevant um, so it's like it's like when um, planes ask for your gender isn't it on a, especially a, are you a male doctor or female doctor it's like neither doctor actually but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i i think that uh the best way to break it down is to either use something like a multi-label classifier that allows for a breadth of information or to just go no none of it don't yeah. need to ask yeah yeah Makes why sense. why is it relevant yeah mm-hmm. one thing i'm really excited about with your work is how it is literally making gender a spectrum um, which I know that is something we speak about sometimes when we're talking about gender and whether it's binary, whether it's a spectrum, whatever it is. But that, yeah, no, that's wonderful. I wanted to know also what kind of themes in this work are you exploring for the first time? I know some of your themes are recurring, but mm. what's new? What's new? Well, I think actually um, working with a classifier is very new for me um, because I, I've i always been very against classification. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that working with a classifier in this way and, um, training it and going back and forth, I actually, one of the funny things was uh, this probably a bit of a side note, but, um, bias, uh, cause of course bias is a big, uh, thing that I work with. Yeah. Um, I actually needed a, a slightly biased data set in, um, in that uh, project because I actually needed it to give, if it was completely even, completely unbiased, which was my original plan, all the colours came out muddy. They came out. Oh. oh. Yeah. There was, there was no vibrancy. There was no vibrancy. There was no interest. We gender actually... is beige. Yes. <laughs> Who wants that? The, the, I feel like there's a metaphor in there somewhere. Yes, right? <laughs> no, we actually needed the diversity to make it colourful, to make it interesting, to make it – and there is a metaphor in there. There's something deep. I love that yeah. so much. <laughs> <sighs> Where did you get the data set from for this? I built it. <laughs> I, um, How do you do that? <laughs> Tell us more. Um, I generated the faces uh, like uh, using uh, St- uh, StyleGAN. Um, uh, uh, this person does not exist, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and downloaded them en masse and uh, trained them. It's actually quite a small data set. There's only a few thousand images. So it's trained on images that were also generated by an AI. Yep. Everybody oh, in it is fake. That's like a cool. snake eating its own tail. It's right? fantastic. Yeah, it's all the way down. It also passes ethics. <laughs> <laughs> Which really, when you're researching, is the most important yes. thing. Yeah. I didn't have time to wait for ethics board approval. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. No, 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 please. <laughs> go ahead. Um, I was also wondering a bit more about the themes that are revisited for those of, for those of us who haven't seen your work mm. Previously, you know, I've asked you what's new, mm. um, and we've spoken a bit about your your work revolving around AI. But what, yeah, what is there in it that um, that picks up on threads from before? And what works of yours would you think people should go and see um, when they are, you know, con- contextualizing this for mm. themselves? I think that um, 
Uh, for me, the, a lot of the continuing themes are on transgender representation and non-binary representation because that's a huge area that's missing in AI. Uh, so I'm definitely looking about at um, uh, including more about this. So that's uh, most of my work is about it's about debiasing. It's about um, showing that gender is so much more than two data points and um, bringing it together. Jay, I'm interested to know, was there anything that AI can't do for this project that you wished it could have done? Oh. And can we teach it to do it? (laughs) Should we? Should Should we, we, yes. Um, Every time I thought, oh, no, I don't think I can do that, I ended up being able to do it. So maybe I I just haven't thought of it yet. (laughs) Pushing the envelope. I like that. The the, the Spectrum one, that was... uh, Oh, can I? But then, yeah, it ended up I could do it. So I don't, I don't know. Um, there, there have been some things where I've wanted to incorporate um, some sound and stuff that uh, the uh, music generation AIs aren't quite there yet. Mm. But I also didn't have a concrete project that I wanted to bring it with. Yeah, it, se- it seems like image generation, image recognition is so much further along than sound, which is funny because when you think about how broadcast and every other piece of technology, mm. sound came first and then vision. It's true. But the new um, OpenAI Whisper um, uh, that came out this week uh, is actually very good for um, live sound transcription and stuff like that. So there is some interesting sound stuff coming out. <laughs> so what do we got to look forward to, I wonder, from your work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, there's so many things I want to make. Um, I, I have a file of different things that I um, uh, of different ideas. So at 3 a.m. when I go, oh, my God, I want to, I, I write it down. Um, definitely going to continue um, in in this non-binary representation for now, though. And, and, and if uh, people want to experience it themselves, Jay, and get their own colour, they're unique yes. or otherwise, <laughs> what do they need to do? Um, yeah, well, uh, go uh, visit uh, via Fringe, melbournefringe.com, or uh, .com.au, I think it is. Whoops. Sorry, I've been doing <laughs> Stockholm Fringe. Um uh, or AI perception, AI gender perception.com is the starting point. And you'll be able to do that uh, during the Melbourne Fringe, which runs from the 6th to the 23rd of October. We've been speaking to the fascinating and awesome artist, Jay Rosenbaum. Jay, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Triple R. Up now, we are speaking with Tim Colwell, who is co-convener of Game Workers Australia, which is Australia's first union for game workers. It launched earlier this year. Hello, Tim. How are you? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, doing pretty well. <laughs> Trying to work out who's been breached by Optus and who hasn't. Yes, everyone. I'm getting all these text messages saying, oh, you were a customer of ours 400 years ago, and we're worried that somebody may have had your you know, address from that time. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. It's nice to know that <laughs> they can. If they want to use that information, then good on it. <laughs> Absolutely. T- Tim, uh, I suppose the the game industry in Australia is, it has been around for a while, but it, people still think of it as a nascent industry. What, what, what has been the, I suppose, the, the impetus for the founding of Game Workers Australia? Look, I mean, I guess there's a lot of... Um, a lot of ways to answer that question. I think from a personal perspective, you know, one of my motivations has been that I've experienced a lot of um, hardship and difficulty uh, and exploitation myself in the industry. Um, from a more broader perspective, you know, the, the overwhelming 
stories from our membership and, and you know, even before we were founded, just coming out of the industry in general are, are one of a churn and burn hardship, um, bullying and harassment and, and just, you know, over, overwhelmingly a feeling of having nowhere to turn, having no one you can call on for assistance when these sort of things happen and, and just wanting to be, you know, wanting, wanting to change that and wanting to bring the industry up to the kind of standard that we should have and, and that other industries have in terms of having a voice for workers, you know, having having a body to represent these concerns and having a, a place where, you know, that, that uh, those kind of feelings can be expressed and, and something can genuinely be done about it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that's been long needed. So what... Um what resources do you offer at the um, at GWA at the moment to help people? Yeah, look, sure, sure. I mean, as of the first of May this year, we are a fully fledged, proper trade union. Um, you know, when we've transformed from a group of scrappy activists um, to a, a full on, a fully fledged union. We're backed by the resources uh, and, and the power of Professional Australia, who is who are the trade union for um, information technology and software workers, along with a huge variety of other industries, including pharmacists, translators, interpreters, scientists, engineers, lots and lots of disciplines. Um, they, you know, they have entered into a partnership with us and taken on uh, membership or taken on our membership and, and brought them on board and, and launched their own package, um, you know, which allows our members to be supported in a way that works for them um, and, and that meets the needs of them as, as a pretty unique, uh, in some ways, industry. Um, and so, you know, our, our members can expect to receive any and all of the usual benefits of being in a union. So, you know, that support, that advice, you know, the, the legal assistance if you do need to go to the Fair Work Commission or to a court, um, you know, access to enterprise bargaining and collective negotiations so you don't have to put up with, you know, your boss just putting a contract on the table and asking you to take it or leave it, um, all that kind of good stuff, um, and, and a lot of other things that we offer that we know that our members are going to want in this industry, such as, you know, exclusive events, um, you know, access to uh, private online spaces where they can safely communicate information, all kinds of things. And, and Tim, has there been much uh, response to the founding of GWA by uh, the industry itself? Have they, have, 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 they, have they had anything to say about that? I mean, look, nobody has come out and said they're for or against it. Um, you know, we, we often still, you know, as recently as today, you know, we see... I've seen industry bosses, you know, telling us that, um, you know, that the industry is not going to be able to support a union, um, you know, that those sort of comments are still being made. Um, you know, we haven't had anyone come out and say, you know, we, we do or do not like this union. I mean, famously, that's generally considered to be a misstep for many bosses, regardless of your industry. Um, I have seen that in other industries that are very, very blue-collar, very hostile. I've seen, I've seen that in the networking industry, for example. But I think if an employer in our industry in games was to come out and say that they, you know, just openly did not like us, that would probably be very bad for them and it would be a great boon for us in terms of organising. Uh, you know, there's a very common adage in union circles, which is that the boss is the best organiser, um, and, and that would be a great example of that. If they would just come out and say, you know, that union's bad, don't join it, I'm sure we would expect a surge in memberships the next day. One thing that I think is very interesting about the game industry, particularly the scene that's in Australia and in Melbourne, um, is the number of really small studios where people are often their own bosses as well as being their mm. own employees. <laughs> and so how do you, how do you unionise a group that is often comprised entirely of bosses. 
Yeah, I mean, look, one of the challenges that we've faced in this in this country, I mean, this is something that we certainly have compared notes with, with you know, gaming union activists in other countries, um, is that there are a lot of these, as you point out, these small studios where, you know, uh, you know the, the relationship or the power dynamic, I suppose, is, is a bit messier than it would be in a, in a big AAA studio with a very strong hierarchy, with a very top-down management style. Um, there's no easy answer to the question. I think that the best approach and the best success we've had in having that conversation with people has been to say, you know, yes, uh, you know, you like your boss. Yes, you know, you get on really well with your boss. But, you know, if this guy or this girl or this person is truly your friend, um, they're not going to have a problem with you having a union representing you. They're going to have a problem with entering into a collective agreement that actually locks in and makes these great conditions that you're enjoying and, and this kind of freedom you're enjoying, uh, they're not going to have a problem if you try and make that actually binding. Um, and, and, you know, that's going to be the true test of whether this person is actually your friend or whether or not they were just looking to exploit you the whole time. Um, and, and that has resonated with a lot of people. Um, we are also keenly aware that, you know, due to the nature of our industry here in this country that, you know, operations will spin up and spin down really quickly. You might work under someone for six months, then do nothing for another six months, and then next year to end up, you know, that person is working under you as you manage to get some Screen Victoria funding or whatever it may be. Um, and, and that obviously makes things even a little bit more complex. But, you know, th that's why we've priced our membership, you know, quite accordingly to offer, like, benefits to people that may not See, you know, be part of an active long-term enterprise. You know, they may only need a bit of support here and there, which means they only need to chip in, you know, five dollars a week instead of fifteen dollars a week, for example. And and, and and they would get a level of different um, services and packages available to them to compensate for that. So de de definitely worth looking into it. Tim, um, GWA is going to be at. Uh Melbourne International Games Week next week, I believe. Um, yes. what, what kind of involvement, what can we see from you guys uh, during the week? Look, um, thank you for asking that question, and I'm um, glad you did because we have so much on uh, Melbourne International Games Week, which I'm really, really excited about. This is our first um, presence at Melbourne International Games Week since we properly launched in May this year. Um, we've previously been at, at the event in, a, you know, in, a, in an unofficial activist capacity, uh, so this is our first time really, you know, kicking the doors down and, and, and making our presence felt. So we've got a couple of presentations on during GCAP at the start of the week. Um, and we've also got a networking event on Tuesday at Torrance University, um, which I encourage everyone to go to. Uh, and then later in the week during PAX, we also have several panels and we're also holding career workshops for people looking to get into games. You'll be able to come to our booth uh, in the careers hall and actually speak to people who are in your discipline. So if you want to speak to a producer, you can. If you want to speak to a 2D or 3D artist, you can. Um, and these are all, you know, industry experts who are our members and they're ready and willing to share their advice with you about getting into the industry and, and you know, protecting yourself when you do that. Um, also, our co-convener, Maze Wallen, who you will know, uh, is um, doing a speech at high school, which is the audio convention during the week, which is going to be great. Um, and, you know, overall, it's, it's just going to hopefully be wall-to-wall -wall excitement and wall-to-wall -wall solidarity, and I'm just really, really keen to get started, you know. That's really exciting, and I know that a lot of a lot of folks are going to be super keen to get there, and it's going to be a great time to get in front of a whole lot of people at, you know, gaming game developer summer camp week. <laughs> <laughs> 
sure. Um, where where can people go to find out more about Game Workers Australia and uh, and learn more about what what you folks are up to and what you're doing and what you're going to be doing next? Absolutely. Just head over to gameworkers.com.au and everything you will find is there. If you are a industry worker, um, we've got pay guides. We've got um, explanations of how to tell if you're being sham contracted and what to do about it. Um, we've got, you know, explainers on your rights at work and intellectual property, and you know, so you don't end up having your laptop seized by your company because you've actually been, you know, developing something where the IP belongs to them. All that kind of stuff. Um, and we've also got all the links that you need there to join up and, and get on a membership package and, and start being a member of this brand new union. Oh, that's excellent. That address again is gameworkers.com.au. Thank you, Tim. We've been speaking with Tim Colwell, who is co-convener of Game Workers Australia. Um, they will be around at Melbourne International Games Week, and you can find out more at gameworkers.com.au. Triple R. We're gonna we're gonna go back, I think, a little bit to the Optus discussion, just because it's so huge. It's rare. It's rare that a story this big is in our wheelhouse. Um, but I, one thing we haven't really touched on, and it's very important, is what to do if you find yourself in the position of having your data been involved in this. So I, I guess the first and first thing that I would possibly, and I'm going to probably defer to Lily here, what would you say? I would say probably change your passwords for the, for the absolute first thing. Honestly, um I mean, so one of the things, and they, they got a bit of flack for this Optus saying like, well, fortunately, no passwords are involved in the breach. And it's kind of like, yeah, cool. Only like my name. I guess I'll go change my name and my date of birth and that's cool. Um, changing your passwords is generally a good option. Um, I mean, I doubt that there will be um, – people may try, but it is something that, you you know, it's always a good thing to do. Um, because we now have – the state governments have all pretty much come up with a plan for how you can get your driver's license changed. Mm -hmm. And now we have, you know, our government asking, okay, cool. Can you change your passports as well? So changing the numbers of your identity documents is also a really important thing that you can go and do that will help in terms of um, preventing things like identity theft, credit fraud, that kind of thing. Credit fraud is probably the thing I think most people are worried about in this kind of scenario. And one of the other things that can be done, uh, firstly, you can do um, monitoring of your credit records and things like that to see whether anybody's doing anything dodgy with your information, trying to take out lines of credit in your name. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, it is possible to put a freeze on that, um, which means that nobody can take out a line of credit in your name for, for a few months. That does include you. So if you are intending to take out a loan, maybe don't do that. And also, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, so please consult with the people appropriate to the circumstances, blah, blah, blah. But it is an option that's out there that's being, that's being considered as well. Definitely. And as I would actually say that checking your credit, uh, as someone who has, uh, like I said earlier, been a victim of identity fraud prior to this, um, checking your credit history every year is a really wise thing to do because when something comes up on that list that you know was not you, then you're like, okay, Something's, and and it, it will trigger you to actually kind of fix things. And yeah, well, you you don't want to get into get into a situation where you are applying for you know credit that might be entirely necessary. It might be something that you need and you can't get it. Um, yeah. While 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 we're on it, if if this issue is stress it is distressing you, if you are involved with this, um, or if you have data that's been picked up in um, the the Optus data breach and you are finding it a, a distressing time, uh, there is help at Lifeline uh, thirteen eleven fourteen. And we are going to see a lot of stuff 
I guess it, flying past it's for want of a better term like I, I saw something fly past with regards to this on Twitter which was either the New South Wales or Vic, Vic Rhodes authority saying you can actually very quickly put a, an immediate block on your driver's licence number um, in the process of replacing it so that no one can take out credit using your driver's licence number oh. and you could do that for a period of time. Now that flew past me probably while I was running for a tram so it's it's relatively unverified, I can't say which state it is but there is going to be a lot of news coming out and um, as someone who works for a big broadcaster and is on Optus's email list I am getting so many emails from them frequently so the the, the goalposts are shifting a little bit too. Yeah, well, you're speaking about emails being extra suspicious of any emails you get, phone mm. calls, texts, that kind of thing is absolutely something that's worth doing too. People are going to be trying it on. People are already trying it on, like scammers who have nothing to do with this texting people being like, hey, I have your information. Give me three grand. Yeah, no. Yeah, I've had two of those today. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's Me- like, nice try, sunshine. That's it. Uh, other things to consider, your Medicare card number. I believe Medicare is allowing you to change your Medicare card number if you've been caught up really? in this. I believe Ooh. so. Um, I, I, I'm just reading something from the guardian here um yeah look any, any anything that you have used as a hundred point of id that you've had for a while or something that you might not think it might just be worthwhile going through your wallet and looking at the cards that are in there actually and if you're really cheesed off also use that energy right to your mp make sure we have better roles about this absolutely big time definitely Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure um, doing radio with you this evening. Um, guys, we've, we've been biting into it. My name's been Dan. We've had Lily and uh, Ro in studio, as well as Jay Rosenbaum joining us uh, throughout the evening and piping up whenever we needed uh, them to speak. Thank you very much for your time, Jay. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 